Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Power Passion Podcast. Dr. Joe Kostrich has been on the podcast before, and it's thank you so much for being on again, Joe. Uh, Mason, always a pleasure to be uh, with you and uh, and talk to your listeners and viewers. Exactly. So, the subject of conversation today is COVID. Now. What are your current recommendations of how people at a local level, obviously we're both in Western Australia, uh, should be uh, tackling their health and making sure that they don't um, become susceptible to catching this virus that is completely spread throughout the globe? Right, so necessarily everybody's individual circumstances are, are different and you know where you are jurisdiction wise is is different so uh, therefore i can't offer any advice certainly not in a medical sense um it's not not appropriate for me to, to do that however um that said there are a couple of overarching considerations i mean number one no matter where people are in the world um and the next thing I'm going to say is going to sound semi-contradictory. Um, look, one needs to observe and abide by um, what people what we're being told to do. Equally, that doesn't mean that you have to suspend your ability to think critically. And you may still go along with what you're told to do without necessarily accepting that there's a particularly strong reason behind it. And I get a little bit tired of hearing people talk about the science the experts and the advice they never seem to be prepared to show it to anybody it seems to change on a regular basis and it does seem to be quite contradictory when one looks at different um, jurisdictions but look at the end of the day where we are now in october is a long way and i seriously mean a long way from where we were in march now, in March, what we thought was this is a, t a fearsome virus. It's really going to, you know, cut through the globe, almost like the, you know, the bubonic plague of old and have this massive death toll. And the reason we thought that was because most of the people who were being tested were quite ill. So we're talking about people in hospital, people who are presenting um, in a situation where they really were quite unwell. And you know, a significant number of those people ended up dying. So the idea was, yes, this death toll is far in excess of what we might see with seasonal flu or other viruses. But that was just because it was a skewed population. If you only test the sickest people, sure, you're gonna have a higher percentage death rate in that population. If you go out and test hundreds of thousands and millions of other people has now been happening over the last seven months, you get a very, very different figure. And uh, John P. Ioannidis, who is a um, epidemiologist and researcher from, um, from Stanford University and has been well known over the years for being a fierce critic of uh, medical doublespeak and has been a critic of medical studies that don't cut the mustard and advisories that don't stand up to scrutiny said in March that the infection fatality rate and when I talk about infection fatality rate, I'm talking about positive tests, not cases. A case is where you're actually unwell. Infection is where you don't know there's anything wrong with you and you have a test and it's like, oh, look, you're positive for this. That's an infection, it's not a case. So the infection fatality rate was going to be about 0.3% and that is pretty much the same as, as seasonal flu. And everybody, you know, laughed him out of the place and said, no, 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 no. And he'd done some very early research looking at um, a couple of cruise ships and doing some demographic considerations and you know, the sort of stuff that the news media just finds too hard and politicians just don't want to know about. Um, and he's basically been proved, proved right. So we have a virus that for a, the vast, vast, vast majority of people 
is not going to be a problem. We know it is going to be a problem if you're over the age of 80, and we know it's going to be potentially a problem if you have significant comorbidities, and that particularly includes, you know, heart disease, diabetes, and, and not just, you know, mild diabetes, we're talking about more severe, pointy end stuff. The average, um, the average age of death of COVID in this country is 82. It's similar in the UK. It's almost exactly, exactly the same as the average life expectancy. So get back to your original question, what can one do to look after one's health? Well, it's all the same principles that one applies to, to try and not get the flu or to not get a whole host of other viruses. COVID is a virus. It's a new, well, it's a new strain of an existing group of viruses. It's not a new group of viruses. We've had coronaviruses previously. But it is about eating sensible diets. So it means, you know, having some vegetables and fruits and, you know, good quality proteins, meat, fish, chicken, um, drinking plenty of water, not smoking is not a good thing to do. You can have a glass of wine or beer, but don't overdo the alcohol. Get adequate sleep, manage your stress, do some regular exercise, um, you know, manage your stress, um, get a little bit of fresh air and, uh, and sunshine, um, you know, make sure you get some enjoyment through the course of the day or week. Now, I appreciate some of these things, you know, in the current circumstances, maybe a little bit easier said than, uh, than done, but by the same token, um, there's a lot that, you know, can be done even in, uh, you know, even places where they've had very harsh lockdowns like Melbourne, um, you know, which I don't agree with, but that's another matter. Um, you know, you can do, um, you know, some exercise, um, you know, even if it has to be within five kilometres of your house, I think it's now 25. Um, you know, you can go for a walk or, or jog around the block or a bike ride and, and stay within that, uh, you know, those parameters. So you can't always do everything, but you can do what you can. Exactly, exactly. Thanks you for that insight, Joe. I um, just want to bring the conversation to uh, a cure for COVID. So, I personally, obviously, an outside person looking into what is going on. What are your thoughts? And obviously, this is opinion here, so I don't expect you to offer um, an answer that will necessarily, that, that you're equipped with answering right now. But what are your thoughts on perhaps uh, getting a cure faster to people that need it now? Uh, at, I suppose, the cost of not abiding by certain uh, drug regulations and phasing and, and trialling and all that kind of stuff? Highly unlikely there's going to be a cure for the virus for a very simple reason for that. There has not ever been a cure for any of these sorts of viruses. There's no cure for flu. You know, we've had flu around since the year dot and there's no cure for it. The um, medications that are prescribed will shorten the course by on average 20 hours. It's about as good as it gets. And there's never been a cure for any cold type virus. And the coronavirus is essentially more a cold type virus than a flu-like virus, even though, even though this COVID-19 in its, I suppose the way it's behaves, um, and, its, uh, and, and its death rate is more consistent with, um, with flu. So people talk about hydroxychloroquine generates a lot of passion, a disturbing amount of passion, to be honest. Um, rem, rem, remdesivir, 
um, zinc, the, the, you know, there's a whole range of, of medications that people have, um, have spoken about. I don't see any of these as a cure. Now, some of the data on hydroxychloroquine is interesting and it suggests, and I want to emphasize suggests, and in Australia, it's not actually allowed to be prescribed, which is a whole separate matter, suggests that in certain circumstances, if taken early, especially in conjunction with zinc, it may have a beneficial effect. It's not a cure. It is not a cure. Um, it may, um, you know, stave off some of the uh, more severe symptoms in some people in certain circumstances. But a lot of the, most of the trials that are being done are being done on vaccines. And I don't personally expect there's going to be a vaccine anytime soon either. Um, again, for the very simple reason that there has never, never been a successful vaccine for a corona strain of virus. And people's idea that as soon as there's a vaccine, well, somehow that's going to be the end of the virus. We have a flu vaccine every single year. The flu's never gone away. So the idea that a vaccine will eliminate the virus is totally flawed. So politicians and, and others who think, well, as soon as there's a vaccine, that's going to be the end of the virus. No, it is not. I think it is important with any treatment that's offered to a large number of people, that you don't shortcut safety trials. The last thing that you want is to create more problems than you solve. And, and this is one of the important things of the vaccine, that if it's trialed on, and not to be more than that, if it's trialed on a thousand people and, it's a, and there's a serious adverse effect, and I mean, I'm not saying there will or there won't be, but there's a serious adverse effect, say in one in every million people. By the time you administer that vaccine to seven billion people, you have a lot of serious adverse effects that you're not going to see in a trial of 200 or even 1,000 or even 10,000 people. So it is important um, from a safety perspective that we don't do more harm than, uh, than good. Um, now, can you fast track things to the extent that certain people at particular risk, somebody who's very ill in, a, you know, in an ICU ward, can you sometimes say offer them a, a, an untrialed or... Um, a questionable treatment when really it's that or they're going to die anyway. Look, that's an interesting ethical and philosophical question. And ultimately that has to be answered by relatives rather than the, than the individual. And in America, they do have some, uh, I think in some states what they call right to try laws that more or less says um, it's, it's not approved at medication, but you have a right to, to try it if you understand the, uh, the risks and, and benefits. Um, look, I think, in this particular situation, it's such an emotional and febrile environment, it's going to be very difficult for anybody to make an informed decision and actually have, and base it really just on the facts of the, of the matter. So as an overarching principle, if we're talking about any sort of treatments that might be offered to a, a significant, like we're talking about patients, may, maybe everybody in the world in terms of a vaccine, we really want to be sure, really sure, very sure, um, that we're not going to do more harm than, uh, than good. Yeah, absolutely. I think you touched on something very interesting, uh, Joe. So are current politicians using COVID and their proclaimed uh, miracle cure as a benefit to their own public perception and their ability to sway uh, public opinion and buy themselves votes? Yes, well, really um, interesting. Certainly um, polls, if they are to be believed, 
uh, have been very strong in support of, in this country at least, state premiers who are pretty much all care and no responsibility. Uh, they're happy to lock up their economies, Victoria the worst, the WA to a lesser degree, and Queensland to a lesser degree, because the federal government is picking up the tab for it all. Uh, you know, people are on JobKeeper and JobSeeker. Uh, there's a whole lot of financial support that's being put in that's being paid for by the federal government. Um, these state governments are just being able to huff and puff and, you know, pretend how tough they are. New South Wales is an excellent example, is an absolute standout of how you can keep your economy open. They've never closed their borders other than to Victoria at the end of June. So right up until that second wave, due to the incompetence of the Andrews government and its hotel quarantine program, up until that point, they had not closed their borders at all and continue to have open borders and now to New Zealand as well. And they do get outbreaks or they do get, you know, they do get cases. And we need to move away from this concept that a case is a problem. Um, you know, I saw today that in the world, um, just while I'm talking to you, I'll, I'll check it. So today, 110,000 new cases in the world. Australia has a total of 28,000 cases. People get sort of, you know, hot under the collar because there are three new cases. And whether, and, and the question is not whether there are cases. The question is how many people are actually sick from this? Not how many positive tests have you got? Positive tests is not what matters. What matters is hospitalizations, serious illnesses and intensive care usage. Now, the concept of flatten the curve again, for those with long memories, might remember from April and March was the whole rationale of lockdowns and closing things down was to flatten the curve. The idea of flatten the curve was that you buy the health system some time so it can cope with cases as they arrive. It wasn't eliminate the virus. It was, we need, we've got 7,000 ICU beds in this country. Some pundits said we were gonna have them all filled all filled, all 7,000 filled by April 4. As at today, I don't think there is a single person in all of Australia in an intensive care unit bed with COVID, not one. The curve is about as flat as a road. Um, so therefore, that was mission accomplished. Now we have to figure out how to live with this virus because it is not going away. Yeah, I think that's very important to, to realise because um, yeah, a lot of people are using the pandemic as almost like a, a a fear tactic in a way. So politicians will use it. Uh, various, I suppose, laissez-faire capitalists um, on YouTube will be selling, you know, uh, maybe the next uh, brilliant mask or whatever it might be. Just, just on that, Dr. Joe, now, uh, wearing a mask. Now, obviously, this means that a lot of your breathing through your mouth will be, be caught, I assume. But are there benefits in wearing a mask? And I suppose it's very interesting because you can answer that one. And then I, I also, just, just a little bit of tip in for me, I don't like the fact that masks have become like almost a political symbol coming from uh, US influence. But, but what are your take on, on masks? Well, it's interesting. Masks is also where we've had these flip-flops and we've had people saying, don't wear masks, they don't do anything, right the way through to masks being made mandatory. There may be certain circumstances where there's a case for masks. Now, the, 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 the science is not in. You know, if we're doing, if people are doing it, it's because they've been told and because it seems like a good idea. 
once again, a bit like with, with vaccines, what do we actually understand by it? So is a mask a surgical mask? And people say, oh, doctors wear masks in hospital. Yeah, they do. They use them once they throw them away, maybe after a couple of hours. Uh, people wearing handkerchiefs as masks or, you know, and they're using maybe for a week. It's a completely different consideration. So then the issue is, well, is really the mask for your benefit or everybody else's? It's probably not so much for your benefit. It may, um, maybe it helps reduce the spread. There's not a lot of data or evidence out there. It's one of these, it's one of these, um, I suppose, recommendations where it sort of seems to be doing something and maybe or maybe not it, it does. But in, for example, for example, in New South Wales, they're encouraging people to wear masks on public transport. Now, if you're on a train and you're squeezed up close to people, you know, I, I can, and I'm not a great fan of, of masks, but I can see a case for that. I think it's quite reasonable. In Victoria, where they're saying to people, if you're walking out in the middle of a park by yourself and you still need to wear a mask, that is ridiculous. Um, so if there is a case for it, it is in a space, you know, confined spaces where there are a lot of people and a lot of movement of people. Hmm. In other circumstances, it really is of questionable benefit. Fair but enough. again, as I said at the, at the start, you know, we're depending where people live, you know, one needs to sort of, you know, have a quiet life, sort of comply, but that's still different to accepting or, or swallowing the proverbial Kool-Aid. And, and to get back to your previous point, Mason, I think there is a lot of, uh, a lot of politicians do see capital in this. Politicians love um, being able to save the day. So they see themselves as heroes. They've prevented deaths. They've saved the populace. Well, no, they haven't. They actually haven't. Um, Australia has been remarkably uh, well, you know, has done remarkably well because we're a long way away from everywhere and we've got a lot of wide open space. This is not, you know, Australia is not New York. It's not London. It's not Europe. You know, we've got a country of 25 million people. The UK is about 65 million people. You can fit about 50 or 60, I can't give an exact number, UKs into a map of Australia. I think that tells you something. Yeah, absolutely. And then also, um, this is another thing that's going around because uh, people are listening uh, and paying attention to the US election, Joe. Uh, mm. And there's big things that are going on. Like I noticed personally, because I did do some independent content, which will be released soon on um, testing. Like it's almost like it's a flex move for a politician to go, we've done so many tests. And going back to what you said earlier, and I don't want to mischaracterize or paraphrase or anything. So correct me if I'm wrong here, Joe. But you did mention that just having cases alone doesn't necessarily mean that that person will end up in an intensive care unit. So going back to what I'm asking is, with tests, do you think that more tests are, obviously that's a benefit to understand the scale of the virus. So what are your thoughts on people just you know saying, tests are great, we're doing so many tests, all this kind of stuff? Look, just doing more tests of itself is not a particular achievement. Mm. That, but I think what more tests do tell us is a better, like we get a better understanding of the actual characteristics of this virus. So this, this gets back to at the start, the fatality rate was thought to be three or 4%, which would be horrendous. If, if three or four in every 100 people who got this virus died, uh, you know, I think that would be... You know, you know, I think one could really understand lockdowns. You could understand a whole host of measures. I mean, that is, you know, we'd be talking about 4% of the, the, the global population. But the more tests we do, if we find that is not the case, and particularly we find that it's only about 0.3%, 
um, and that that is around about the same as seasonal flu. And not only that, but that unless you are over the age of 80 or at other particular risk, that it's just not going to be a problem. So the more tests we do in people with dentures, well, there's nothing wrong with these people. They either had no symptoms at all, or they had very mild cold-like symptoms and they got better. I think the more of that that happens, and, and it's, I don't think enough is said about this, that you know, 99.7 or so percent of people either get very mild symptoms or none at all. I think that can give people a lot more confidence that if they do get out and about, that they're not going to die of this thing. Yeah, yeah. It's one of those things. And I do like uh, what you mentioned earlier about uh, the, the heroism, the, the save the day mentality of a lot of people uh, in public office that try and do that. But just on this side, so obviously uh, with your profession, Joe, how has this directly uh, impacted your line of work? Do you have to reassure people and give everyone the information that you've kindly offered to this podcast right now for those people that are listening to give them almost like a, a bit of a reality check because the media is probably also politicians, the media and whoever else wants to use the pandemic to attract more eyeballs and attention to up their ad revenue or do anything like that. It seems to be everywhere. It's inescapable, no matter if you're watching mainstream media or you're on YouTube or you're on social media platforms, people seem to be absolutely loving the fact that they can just monopolize people's attention and spread the incorrect narrative, which buys them attention. So, so do you have to reassure people lately uh, in your line of work? Uh, look again, I think most of it's sort of fairly, it's going to be quite jurisdictional. Um, look in, in Perth, um, I don't really see too many people are that worried about it at the moment. And that's partly because they, they look around and they just, they don't see a problem. And there's a very simple reason for that. There isn't a problem. And uh, reopening the borders, which I think needs to happen, is not going to create a problem either. Yes, we may have some cases and those cases can be isolated. It's relatively straightforward. So, no, I think in, in WA, most people are fairly you know, relaxed and uh, I don't think people are, are that worried. Now, I suspect in Melbourne that's less the case, but I think even in Melbourne, people are and very understandably now getting far more worried about suicides, about mental health, about bankruptcies, about businesses closing down, um, about the misery that's been brought about by the, uh, by the response, which is now dragged on far too, too long. So uh, look, I think a few months ago, yes, we're having to sort of say to people, you know, it's, it's not quite as bad as you, as you think it is. And the other important point in this Mason is that it's not static. Um, so when we look at, for example, the WA borders, that was announced at the end of March. That's seven months ago. Now, at the end of March, I'll put my hand up. I felt that was justified. Again, on this concept of flatten the curve and on the concept that we really didn't know what we were dealing with. But we know a lot more now. So the idea that, that policy settings that were appropriate in March are still appropriate in October, um, I think, is where we've got some, uh, some problems. And look, I think outside the social media bubble, um, look, I think most people really do look around and eventually it's like chicken little, chicken little and the sky is falling. You know, you say the sky is falling, the sky is falling, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. And people eventually look up and you know, hey, what, the sky hasn't fallen. They've told me this a hundred times the sky has fallen. They've told me a hundred times that this virus doesn't discriminate, that everybody is equally, um, you know, equally vulnerable. But the only people who seem to be at risk are those over the age of 80. Now, this business about, oh, you just want to kill granny. No, no. But 
it's not, um, un not unsurprising to people that pneumonia or influenza or other infections are a greater threat to people over the age of 80 with other health problems than they are to somebody who's fit, well and healthy in their 20s. That doesn't come as any surprise. So it shouldn't come as any more surprise that this is the case. And the failures worldwide, and this is not just Australia, but New York in particular, New Jersey, um, Italy as well, um, and other jurisdictions has been the failure to keep the virus out of nursing homes. Now, I don't want to point the finger at anybody because I don't know if it's that easy to do and whether it can ever be done perfectly, it can't. But the more one can keep it out of nursing homes, and that does come back to what we said before about testing people, and you know, if you're positive, you don't go to a nursing home, um, you can probably reduce mortality, you know, to, and probably to a reasonable degree. Fair enough. Is there anything I suppose that you care to share on COVID outside of, of my questions, Joe? If not, then by all means, uh, we can speak about um, anything that you've released on your blog, at, on your website. I'll leave a link below for those people that want to check out Dr. Joe's blog. Uh, so is there anything um, currently? Uh, look, I think we've covered most of the, the, the COVID. I think the important thing is for people to um, not get carried away with, with fear and paranoia. And, and the other thing is that it's important to keep your critical thinking. And even if you, as I said, if you need to, to go along and nod your head and do what you're asked to do, depending where you, where you live, that, that doesn't mean that you have to agree with everything, even if you do it, and that you need to be questioning. And certainly when polling day comes, it'll you know, rock around in all these jurisdictions over the, the next so many months and couple of years, um, that you remember and ask, well, did these people actually do the right thing by me or did they, you know, seek to take advantage of the situation to make themselves look important and, um, you know, didn't really care about what, that's uh, uh, not quite fair, um, and perhaps, you know, didn't really think about the consequences of their actions. In medicine, we have to think about side effects. You come to see me, Mason, and I prescribe for you a medication or I recommend you some form of treatment. You go and see a surgeon and he says you're gonna have an operation. They have to explain to you what the complications of surgery are. I need to tell you about what the potential side effects are. And you know what? You can make a decision as to whether um, what is being treated warrants the, uh, the, the, the side effects that is recommended. For example, with cancer and chemotherapy, and the side effects were quite horrendous. And people will say, well, look, I'll accept that if it's going to treat my cancer. If you had a sore toe, we recommended chemotherapy, I think people would not accept that because the side effects are far worse than the actual condition. So proportionate response is not all or none. It's not either we let it rip and granny dies and we don't care and it's all about dollars, um, but suicides, less cancer screening, poorer control of heart disease, increased mental health problems, increased poverty uh, due to unemployment and business bankruptcy, which is of itself associated with poorer health outcomes. All of those are major side effects and they're not, all, they're not economic side effects, they are health effects. But nobody talks about this. In any other field of medicine, in any other field of medicine, the doctor is duty bound to explain risks and benefit. If you're a public health physician, you happen to work for the government, not only does that not make you an expert, it makes you a doctor who happens to work for the government, doesn't of itself confer any greatness upon you, um, but all of a sudden you're excused from having to consider side effects. So um, you know, I think it's a very important consideration. Um, to get back to your other point, um, on November 5, um, a Senate inquiry into vaping 
um, will take, it will close its submissions, actually it could be November 6. Um, and it's a Senate inquiry into tobacco harm reduction. And the chair people of that committee are Senator Holly Hughes from New South Wales and Senator Matt Canavan from Queensland. And they are wanting to examine um, legalisation of vaping in Australia. Um, so I would urge anybody who's watching this who has a, who knows somebody who smokes or somebody who's tried to smoke or had a family member perhaps who's had a smoking related illness and has struggled to give up smoking and has tried all the usual stuff on the quick lines and, 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 and. We know we still have um, about 13, 14% of the population in Australia uh, smoking. We know it's disproportionately higher in indigenous populations, um, in people with mental health problems, in homeless, in prison populations, in disadvantaged populations, and that Australia is doing really nothing to help these people quit. New Zealand has legalised vaping, the UK has legalised vaping, Australia has resisted it. This current Senate inquiry is possibly the best chance uh, that we have to actually get sensible legislation in this country, which means legalisation and proper regulation of vaping and making it no harder, no harder for smokers to access a, a, an alternative, which is at least 95% less harmful than smoking. That's fair enough. And I would just, I just want to add this little bit of a, uh, information on top of that, uh, Joe. I, I found, uh, I, I think I read something uh, earlier, um, about a month ago about prescriptions for people that smoke and i do think that uh look i i have gone out i've vaped before it's one of those things that all you're really craving out of the horrible thing that you're inhaling in a cigarette uh, that is also you can put into vaping is nicotine and mm -hmm. these things these things personally i mean i i've uh, had the experience uh, just to be very authentic and transparent right now with everyone listening to this podcast that it does overflood your system with like almost like an endorphin rush. Am I right or am I wrong, Joe, when it comes to uh, nicotine? And I suppose that gives you like a, a feeling of euphoria or whatever the heck it might be. Well, look, the effect is different for different people. But look, people smoke because they do want the nicotine. And the late Michael Russell, a psychiatrist, basically coined, I think, in the late 60s, uh, smokers come for the nicotine, but they die with all the other chemicals. So uh, vaping is a way of getting nicotine without those other chemicals. Now, so are patches, so are gums, so are sprays. But, you know, people don't necessarily find those ones helpful. And not, not everybody finds vaping helpful either. Let's, you know, let's be clear. But it is at least 95% less harmful than smoking. Now, is, you, is it euphoric? Look, I don't think most smokers would describe a feeling of euphoria. They, sometimes people find they feel less stressed. They may feel a little bit more relaxed. They may feel a little bit happier. I mean, I'm not a smoker myself. I never have. I think I tried it once and almost threw up and that was enough for me. Um, so, you know, I'm sure people do it because they get a positive feeling out of it. It would seem a bit, you know, seriously, a little bit pointless if you didn't. Um, so they, they do, and we also know that uh, for people with schizophrenia, that it does seem to have a calming effect. That's why there's a very, very high percentage of people with schizophrenia smoke. Um, and they're far more likely to die of smoking related illnesses than of schizophrenia. And again, this is a tragedy that the um, elites in, in big public health uh, who sit latte at universities just don't seem to care about. Um, back in the real world, um, it's a genuine concern. And look, speaking of declarations of interest, I am the chairman of Australian Tobacco Harm Reduction Association, which is a uh, not-for-profit organisation that is lobbying um, and supports legalisation of vaping. I don't get paid um, for that role, I would add as well. Fair enough, fair enough. So for everyone that would like to find Dr. Joe, we'll obviously leave his website below. 
Uh, if you would like to make a few concluding remarks, Dr. Joe, uh, that'd be great. And then I'll uh, let everyone know where they can like, subscribe and share this content. Uh, it's been wonderful having a conversation as per usual with you, Dr. Joe. Um, you always are on top of your knowledge and I uh, very rarely find anyone that is on top of their, and I won't use the profanity, I won't use that word, but everyone knows what I'm talking He's on top of it, absolutely. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, look, you know, if you look at over the centuries and thousands of years, uh, look, we've had plagues, the, you know, the Spanish flu in 1918, we've had avian flu, we've had, you know, SARS, we've had MERS, we've had all manner. They all eventually go away. And this one will too. There is a Buddhist saying, uh, this too shall pass. And, you know, I think for the people out there really are tearing their hair out, um, you know, there's any solace, hopefully this too shall pass. Not as quickly as we'd like it to, um, I suspect, but it will pass. And at some point, people are going to look back and say, well, where did that all go to? And like uh, say Spanish flu and everything before it, it will, you know, it will go and life will get back to normal. But I think it's also important that we ensure, and this is where it will be up to the, the populace to ensure that governments are put back in their box and that uh, would be sort of dictators have their powers stripped back to pre-COVID levels. Fair enough, fair enough. Thank you everyone for listening to the Power Passion podcast where creativity outlasts competition. And we are breaking down socioeconomic divides so everyone in the world can talk about real ideas and things that are important. So you can hit the like and subscribe button below. Thank you so much, Dr. Joe, for being on the podcast again. Pleasure, uh, pleasure, Mason.